Rocky Peak, how are you doing this weekend? Hey, it is good to be with you once again. Whether you're joining us here on campus, inside the worship center, out on the patio, whether you're joining us online, special welcome to you that are joining us for the very first time. We're excited to be able to spend this weekend service with you. If you and I have not had the chance to meet yet, my name is Dre. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Rocky Peak, and we're going to go into that time of teaching. So if you haven't done so yet, inside your program is a green and white message note sheet, which is going to be a great tool to help you follow along this weekend, you're definitely going to need it. we got some work to do this weekend, Rocky Peak. As you're going to want to have that handy, you're going to want your Bibles ready, I'm going to pray, and we're going to go ahead and jump right in. Jesus, we just declared through song a wonderful truth that you are beautiful. Beauty is not something you simply do. Beauty is who you are. And not only are you beautiful, Jesus, but you bring beauty out of the most broken and even the darkest of places. You came into our world to bring beauty out of it. You came into our lives to bring beauty out of it. You removed the sin in our hearts so the beauty of the kingdom of God could continue to live in it. And so Jesus, yes, we declare as a church that what a beautiful name it is. And we rest and reflect in what you do in your act of, of beauty. And so as we open up your word, which is living and active, your word, which is beautiful, because it continues to reveal your identity. Jesus, we are committed as your people to listen to what you have to say to us this weekend. As a communicator, as I often pray the words of John the Baptist, I pray that I would become much, much less and fall to the wayside. And I pray that you, King Jesus, and in your beautiful name, would become much, much more. And it's in that name that we all say, amen. Well, Rocky Peak this weekend, we're going to be continuing the series we've been in for, I want to say, the last three weeks now or so, called Signs the Path to Glory. And if you're joining us for the very first time, what this series is, this is actually the third series, or as Michael put it when he introduces the third season, if you will, in this bigger series called Signs. And Science has been an in-depth study through the Gospel of John in the New Testament, in which we've been unpacking the life and teachings of Jesus as seen by one of his closest followers and friends, the man that we now call the Apostle John. Now, this specific series, The Path to Glory, is we're going to see the end of Jesus' life, and we're going to see that that path to glory is going to lead right through the cross and going to lead right through his crucifixion. And at the time of Jesus' death, the cross represented the greatest amount of shame and humiliation a person could experience, but it's there when Jesus is nailed to the cross, lifted up that we are going to experience his greatest glory and we're going to see the heart of our king clearly revealed. And what we learn through the path of glory about the heart of Jesus is that he will do whatever it takes to bring glory to God the Father and whatever it takes to bring life to his people. And so this weekend, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be going through John chapter 18. We're going to be going through the entirety of John 18. And what we're going to see as we go through this chapter is that Jesus is going to suffer. 
Jesus is going to suffer greatly. It's going to begin with a significant heartbreak. And from there, it's almost like the floodgates are opening. And then another heartbreak, another pain, another trial. And some of us know that this is going to continue beyond John chapter 18. But as we look at this together, many, if not all of us, are going to be able to relate to that. Because many, if not all of us, have been through seasons, are currently in a season where it feels like something goes wrong and it all of a sudden sets off the dominoes and now something else goes wrong. Something else goes wrong. Another bit of pain, another bit of suffering. And so letting you know just truth, as we look at John chapter 18, there is going to be a heaviness and there is going to be a weight. At the same time, there is going to be a beauty and there is going to be a hope. It's going to be heavy. Because John chapter 18 reminds us that on this side of heaven, we are not promised a life free from suffering. But the beauty and the hope is that we are promised the presence of Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. And that's equip and empower us to suffer well through the storms in our lives. There in the front of your note sheet, I like how Matt Chandler puts it. He's a pastor of the Village Church over in the Dallas, Texas area. He says that over and over again, I saw someone face their greatest fear, and over and over again in that moment, I saw the grace of God show up. There was still a lot of sadness, a lot of heartbreak, a lot of disorientation, and yet there was also a confidence that God was working and that God was present in that suffering. And that's the hope we have when we experience our own storms and significant sufferings in life. And so if you're following along in the note sheet, you got a section titled, When It Rains, It Pours. And if you look at that section, you're going to see that there are six blanks. What these are going to be as we go through John chapter 18 is we're going to highlight six specific areas in which Jesus experienced hurt, heartbreak, and suffering. And so if you've got your Bible, open it up. If you've got your app, turn them on. We're going to be going to John chapter 18. And the truth is, we actually could spend several weeks in John chapter 18, and so we're just doing kind of a big overview for our time together this weekend. So we might be jumping around a little bit, there might be some areas that we paraphrase, but hey, you got this, Rocky Pig. We're going to be in good shape. And so John chapter 18, starting at verse 1, when he had finished praying, so this is what Jesus had done in the chapter earlier, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. We know from the other Gospels that this garden was called Gethsemane. And so Jesus is only uh, maybe a couple of miles, two or so miles outside of the, temp outside of the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 2, now Judah who betrayed him. Would you underline or highlight that? Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place 
because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Verse four, Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him. Will you stop and just pause and take that in? Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him. Would you highlight or underline that? Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so let's pause right here and unpack what's going on here. In particular, what we need to do to really understand the magnitude of what we just read is that we need to take off our modern lenses. And what I mean by that is whether you've grown up in church or not, culturally, worldwide, we all get that Judas betrayed Jesus. In fact, that's now even become a term synonymous for being a traitor is that you are a Judas in this situation. And so we approach this reading always knowing, and I think because of that, sometimes it adds filters to how we understand Judas. I've characterized this in the past that we sometimes picture Judas as always looking like the bad guy or always being the shady guy. That You kind of picture that out of the 12, he was always with a top hat and an evil mustache and always kind of twirling his fingers like ready to pounce. But again, this is our modern lenses speaking. We need to take this off and we need to understand the impact and the hurt that the disciples are facing. Because if we go back to John chapter 19, Jesus told his disciples, one of you is going to betray me and not a single one of them accused Judas. Why? Because to them, he was their brother. He was their friend. He was their partner. In fact, we know from the Gospels, the Judas was the treasurer in charge of the money. You don't put the shady guy in charge of the money. And so there was even less reason to accuse him. And so as we build that context a little bit, I'm gonna ask you to try to emotionally connect. If you were one of those disciples, what could you possibly be feeling when you see Judas with the religious leaders and with a detachment of Roman soldiers coming to arrest Jesus? using their experiences and the knowledge of this place against them to take away your teacher, take away your friend, take away who you're hoping is the Messiah. What is your heart experiencing? And that leads us to that first fill-in right there, that this first area of pain that Jesus experiences is betrayal. And this is a significant betrayal. And again, Jesus knew that this was coming, but Jesus still felt, Jesus still had emotions as he walked on the earth. And not only did he know that this was coming, but still in his, in his beautiful act of love, Jesus had saved a seat at the table for Judas. Jesus, knowing what was gonna happen, still washed the feet of Judas. I have to believe that this 
hurts. And yet, even though this hurts Jesus, even though this hurt the disciples, Jesus in his infinite authority allows it. He allows it. And I had you underline, because again, that speaks to the authority of our king. In fact, that picture of everybody falling when Jesus identified himself, because Jesus ain't hiding, when he identifies himself is a picture of authority. They can't stand before the king. And so why is Jesus allowing it? Because it's the reason why he allows suffering in our own life. This was not God's original intention. This is a result of sin in our world and in our our lives, but the reason why there are times in which Jesus allows it is because he knows that God is going to do something bigger through it. But like only the king can, he knows what's going to happen, and he allows it, but for his followers and his disciples, his invitation, hey, trust me, because I know what I'm doing. And so we're going to skip ahead a little bit. We're going to go to verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, picture kind of a short sword, if you will, who had, a short, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter. Would you underline or highlight that? Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest of that year. All right, so let's unpack a little bit about what's going on. And again, I'm not looking for hands, but honestly, who among us wouldn't have done what Peter did? Who among us wouldn't have looked at going, hey, in my mind and in my heart, the most important thing I could do right now is defend Jesus. And so what Peter does is he pulls out a sword and Peter lops this guy's ear off, letting us know that Peter is lousy with a sword because it's pretty likely that Peter was looking to go for the kill to protect Jesus. And again, what Peter is doing is not a, oh, Peter. Peter moment. It makes sense. Not to the extreme of trying to kill, but we fight for Jesus like that today, don't we? And what does Jesus do? He says no. Not only does he say it, he commands no. Who issues commands? The king. And he's not only issuing a command to Peter, he's issuing a command to me. He's issuing a command to us. He's saying, even, he's, saying I, he's saying, no matter the good intent, no matter the zeal, you are not going to stop the bigger good that God is going to do. You are not going to stop the cup. In other words, the path to glory. What Jesus is saying, he's acknowledging, yes, this is going to hurt Peter. This is going to hurt you. And this is going to hurt me. But the bigger story that God is doing is that God has a purpose behind this pain. And ultimately, God will redeem it. And so Jesus willingly continues to walk the path of suffering. He allows himself to be arrested. In fact, there on your note sheet, the next pain that he experiences is a wrongful arrest. 
is the misuse of power, the misuse of authority into it. And he's led to Annas, as I mentioned in there, he's not the current high priest, he's a former high priest, but as they go through Jewish procedure and the other gospels, it jumps straight to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. John lets us know through this that there was an interrogation step before that. So what's happening is Jesus' next experience is gonna be like a law and order episode as he's being interrogated. But as Jesus is being led away, our scene shifts a little bit. And so now we're going to follow Peter. Now we're going to follow one of the other disciples as they're trying to keep their distance but see what's happening. They're entering into the courtyard of where they take Jesus. They begin warming themselves as a fire because it's late. And then suddenly somebody recognizes Peter and has a very key question for him. So let's jump to verse 17. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. Would you underline or highlight that? I am not. I think sometimes in the modern church, we're too hard on Peter. And what I mean by that is I think sometimes it's easy to put distance between ourselves and Peter and to go, come on, Peter, what were you thinking? And not realize that Peter is a reflection of me. Peter is a reflection of us. And what I mean by that is earlier, Peter said, Jesus, and this is my translation, I'm ride or die with you. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. Everyone else will, but I never will. And in my heart, I believe that he meant it. But what happened is he was just challenged in a way he could have never anticipated. He just experienced incredible pain and suffering in a way that he would have never guessed. And again, no hands, but in trial, in pain, in anger, and in fear, have you ever found yourself doing something you never thought you were capable of? Have you ever found yourself doing something that you swore or promised that you wouldn't do? Have you ever found yourself in that moment saying, Jesus, I will never betray you in this way only to do it because I know I have. And so again, what does Jesus now experience there in your note sheet? Broken promises. The broken promises of those that love him. We know this is going to continue, but John, again, is going to shift the scene back to Jesus and this interrogation before Annas, this, again, former high priest, but who still held a lot of political, religious sway with the Jewish religious leaders. And so what happens is Annas begins to question Jesus. It's thought that he's trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself as being what's called a false prophet, which for the Jewish ruling council would be a capital crime for them. But what's interesting is that Jesus begins to call Annas out and says, no, 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 you are doing this wrong. Jewish tradition, Jewish law would dictate that you don't ask questions of the accused. You need to bring witnesses. So again, I'm paraphrasing, but Jesus basically goes, ask other people, get witnesses to tell you what I've been doing this whole time. And so if we go to verse 22, what does Jesus get for bringing in truth? When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. 
Would you underline or highlight that? One of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify. Again, he's using a formal legal language. Testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. I got to tell you, Rocky P, because I spent a lot of time in this chapter over these last several weeks, man, a lot of this became wonderfully convicting to my own heart. Because man, I love it. We love it when truth calls out other people. But how do we respond when truth calls our hearts out? Defensiveness anger, justification. No, 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 it's, it's, it's the right thing. It's what Jesus would want. No, 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 this is our traditions. This is how to do this right. And so again, it's amazing. Truth is a beautiful thing. But part of its beauty is that it's painful. But in that pain, it breaks down pride and it builds beauty and holiness in his place. But we need to have the courage to step into it. And what we see in this example is the opposite of that. We see a very violent reaction. In fact, that takes me, uh, that takes me to your next fill. And the pain point that Jesus experiences is assault. And so if we look at these areas of pain that Jesus has been experiencing, the first several were emotional. And now we see that this one is literally physical. And for those of us that know how this is gonna continue, when it comes to physical assault and pain, this is only the tip of the iceberg that Jesus is going to experience. So then as they're transporting Jesus to go before the high priest, the other gospels actually fill in what took place there where they do bring in false witnesses and kind of have what I would politely say a sham of a trial for Jesus. This scene goes back to Peter. And again, as more people are gathering around the fire, they start recognizing Peter as well. And the same question gets asked. And so let's jump to verse 25. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself, so they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. Verse 25, one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. That's awkward, right? <laughs> a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? That's like the most polite way he could have put it. Like, didn't you try to kill my cousin, in essence? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. And so again, we're seeing the depth of this betrayal, the depth of these promises being broken. John presents this very matter of fact. What we see in the other gospels is that Peter's continual denials grow in passion. They grow in intensity. They grow seemingly in anger. That Peter at one point calls down curses. It's kind of a biblical way of saying he's cursing them out to be like, no, 
I am not one of these men's disciples. And again, what I find is that Peter is increasingly relatable because to those eyewitnesses, they probably would have said, man, this guy is angry. This guy is ferocious. But what I find more and more in my life is that anger is rooted in fear. Why is Peter responding the way he is? Why do I, why do we often respond in anger the way we do because we're afraid? And in Peter's case, the cost of being committed to Jesus had just gone up in a way he never anticipated. And it scares him. And I think a lot of us can relate to that, can't we? Whether it's in our world or in our culture, whether it's experiencing suffering in our lives, those moments when we say, when we have to be honest with ourselves and go, to follow Jesus in this moment with what I'm facing, with what my family is facing, with what our world is facing, that cost just went up significantly. And that scares me. And so as this scene continues to shift, we're going back to our law and order episode. John jumps ahead to Jesus being taken before Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea at the time. So if you jump to verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace. Would you underline or highlight that? Because I find that wonderfully ironic. To avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace. We'll unpack that in a moment. Because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? Verse 30, if he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Again, John is reminding us that Jesus has full authority over what's happening, regardless of what all of these people conspiring against him think. But let's unpack this here. First of all, it helps to know a little bit historically about Pilate. Like I mentioned, Pilate was the current Roman governor of the area of Judea. Historically, extra-biblically, what we know about Pilate is Pilate was known as a brutal ruler, in particular brutal towards the Jewish people. Pilate was attributed atrocities committed against the brutal people, and there's some historians that believe he did that to appease or look good to his Roman superiors who liked ruling with an iron fist. And so again, we know that the Jewish people did not want to suffer under the boot of Rome. We knew that the Jewish religious leaders detested Rome and detested Rome's attacks against their culture, against their religion, against their beliefs and everything that made them Jewish. And yet, what do we see? The Jewish religious leaders see Jesus as a bigger threat than Rome because Jesus directly challenges their power, directly challenges everything they know, directly challenges the way they want life to be. And so what are they willing to do? 
They're willing to partner with a monster who has committed atrocities against their own people. And yet, they are still willing to follow surface-level religious traditions. To walk into Pilate's house would be in the court of a Gentile, and that would make them unclean. And so not the deceit, not the lies, not the collaboration, but that was one step too far. And not in that sense, but man, I'm guilty of that too. That's just being a hypocrite. That's putting up the surface level appearance, but not allowing God to do what we talked about last week of transforming our hearts, of making our hearts imperfectly holy. And so we see that. And so they go to Pilate and we see Pilate really doesn't get why Jesus is here. Pilate doesn't care about religious squabbles. And so as, the, as John indicated, the, the Jewish authorities, they don't have the authority to execute a criminal. Only Rome could do that. And so the reason why they're before Pilate is their hope is to present Jesus as a rival king that's a threat to the empire of Rome. They're there to present Jesus as a rival king to Caesar because they know that Rome would not have that. And so because of that, because of the way they're presenting Jesus, that leads us to our next villain, which is Jesus experiences false accusations. He's the victim of lies. As we go to verse 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews. Is this your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? And so the scholarly term for what we just read is that things got spicy as we read that. Because Pilate is asking a very matter-of-fact question. Are you a rival king that Rome needs to be concerned about? And Jesus challenges that with a question. Is that what you think? Or is that what they told you about me? And Pilate responds with an indignant response because as the Romans, they viewed the Jewish people as less than. And he sits there and goes, am I a Jew? No, 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 I'm a superior Roman. However, at this point, we also see that he's curious. And he wants to know, so what's the big deal about you? Why do you have these little religious leaders in such an uproar? And so verse 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Would you underline or highlight that? My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another world place. Verse 37, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Would you underline or highlight that? To testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And so what Jesus says is a beautiful encapsulation of what 
the kingdom of God is, that the kingdom of God does not originate on this world. Therefore, the kingdom of God is not going to resemble anything else we can fight in this world. He uses a very literal example that all of the other kingdoms, then and even now, that the way they view power is that something you need to fight for, something you need to keep, make sure that your purposes go in. What he is saying is, no, 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 no. The kingdom of God does not operate like anything you know because ultimately what we're going to see is that the kingdom of God is a power that is unrivaled by anything on earth and how that is going to be displayed is that the kingdom of God's power is going to be revealed through the suffering of Jesus the Messiah. It is suffering that reveals the true power of God because it reveals that suffering will not stop, will not contain, and will not defend feet, Jesus the King, but he will conquer it. He will engage it. And again, he will take what sin tried to devastate and he will redeem it for the good of his creation. And when he says that his purpose is to reveal the truth, again, it's what we've been talking about over these last couple of weeks, the truth about God's identity. Knowing who God really is, is what transforms our hearts. Knowing the truth about God is what transforms us because when we learn the truth of who God is, we then learn the truth of who we really are. We learn our true calling, our true family, our true purpose, our true worth, our true gifting through Identity. In fact, it's what the whole Supernatural series, the series we were in before, was all about. And ultimately, the truth of God is going to be revealed through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so as we continue, verse 38, what is truth, retorted Pilate? He doesn't yet get it. And a lot of us can point to a time in our lives when that was our response to Jesus too, right? I don't buy it. I don't get it, but through the grace of God, the Holy Spirit opened our eyes, and we now see truth. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. What's fascinating is that Pilate doesn't see Jesus as a threat to the Roman Empire, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at a time of the Passover, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. And so this is really interesting. We actually don't know a lot about this custom he's talking about, but what we can take an educated guess on is that Jerusalem was full of Jewish pilgrims because it was the Passover festival, one of those pilgrimage festivals where everybody came to Jerusalem. And as I've, as I've established, the Jewish people did not care for Rome. They detested being under Rome's, under Rome's rule. And so the Roman government was always anticipating that at some point there would be a Jewish uprising. And in particular, they would reinforce Jerusalem because they figured if there was gonna be any type of uprising and rebellion, it would probably 
happen when there is a majority of them gathered within the city limits. And so what we can gather is that this was a way to try to de-escalate some of that tension by letting them pick somebody who had been a, Ro a, a Roman political prisoner. And so what's interesting is they are choosing Barabbas, who is a revolutionary. He is in prison because he is a threat to the empire of Rome. He led an uprising or a rebellion. Some people think he might have been a zealot, which meant that he sees murder and being a terrorist as an acceptable solution to Rome. It is ironic that Jesus, the man who is not a threat to the empire of Rome, is the one that is now being imprisoned. And Barabbas, the one who is a threat to Rome's empire, is the one being released. But who chose Barabbas? Us. We weren't physically there, but had we been there knowing my heart, I don't know if I would have done anything different. The audience that was there just days earlier were shouting at Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. The king is here. And now because of fear, now because of anger, now because of false accusations, now because of numerous reasons, here they are going, no, 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 no. We no longer choose Jesus. And that leads to the last fill in there, that Jesus experiences abandonment. Abandonment. And so as we leave our passage, just take a look at that list. And one of those items on its own is pretty significant, isn't it? But we just looked at six. And as we dig into the next chapters leading Jesus to the cross, if we were to keep a, go, a ongoing list, that list is going to increase more and more as Jesus continues to experience suffering. But not only that, I want to highlight one thing as you look at that list. Look at that list and what that tells us is that Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. But not only that, if you look at that list, you can relate with almost every area of Jesus' suffering, can't you? You can relate that in many of those areas you've experienced them, that in many of those areas you've been the cause of them to other people. We look at that list and that is a list of pain, of trial, of hardship. But what does that tell us? That Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. It also tells us Jesus knows your suffering. And I really wanna unpack the beauty and the hope of that as we spend the rest of our time together this weekend. And there on your note sheet, you've got a section titled Hope in the Storm. And your feeling is this, Jesus has entered into our suffering. Jesus has entered into our suffering. And the reason why this is such an important truth is this is an anchor when we're in the middle of our storms. 
especially when we're in a season like Jesus in which it seems like everything falls apart, one thing after another after another, when we find ourselves honestly going, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? We need this truth to anchor us. And what I mean by that is, the whole purpose of God so loving the world that he gave us his one and only son is that Jesus entered into our world, which means he entered into a broken world that was broken because of sin. He entered into a hard world. He entered into a suffering world, but Jesus didn't stop just by entering into our world. Jesus then entered into our lives, which means he entered into our brokenness. He entered into our sin. He entered into our suffering. Last week we talked about that the name of God is his character. It's his attributes. And so one of the names that Jesus was given is God with us. And when we reflect on them, that means that Jesus is present with us when things are going well, when we are happy, when we are joyful, when we are experiencing successes, that Jesus is present with us in the mundane and the innocuous, and Jesus is present with us when we are at our most sinful, when we are experiencing the most amount of pain, when we are in the darkest season of our souls. When we look at John chapter 18, it is a heavy chapter because we see the beginning of the suffering of our beautiful Jesus, but also when we look at it, it brings hope that not only does Jesus know what it's like to suffer, but he willingly entered into it so that he could connect and relate and declare to us, I know your suffering. He has entered into our pain. Jesus is not distant. Jesus is not removed. And what he willingly models, even though it cost him, what he models is sometimes we think that God is only present in our sufferings when our sufferings are lifted. And hear me please very clearly, Rocky Peak, when you are going through a significant trial or a hardship, when you are going through a season of suffering, pray for it to be lifted. Jesus did. The apostle John, Paul did. Pray for it to be lifted. But what John 18 reminds us is the truth and the hope that if it is not immediately lifted, it doesn't mean that Jesus is not present. It means that he is anchored there with you and he is at work and he is doing something more. And that's not to minimize your pain. Suffering is excruciatingly hard and exhausting and long at times. But instead of being afraid of your pain, he enters into it. He makes himself present and available. He says, you are not going to do this alone. And I used a phrase at the beginning of this time of teaching that sounds like a paradox, but it's truly what the presence of Jesus does in our hearts is that it equips us to suffer well. And what a testimony to how powerful God is, is that if his people learn through his presence to suffer well. And there in your note sheet, 
I wanna highlight three specific ways in which Jesus equips us, transforms us to suffer well in those seasons in our lives. And so your first one is this, that Jesus has entered into our suffering to empathize. To empathize. When we look at the hurts of Jesus, we can relate in some way to with many of those hurts in our own lives. But more importantly, when Jesus is dying as he's nailed upon that cross, Jesus took on the sins of the world. If you've ever stopped to really think about the magnitude of that feat, that as Jesus was dying on the cross, he felt every hurt, every sin, every pain that has ever been done to you, and he felt every hurt, every sin, and every pain that you've ever done to someone else. When we are hurting, one of the most beautiful things is when we feel that someone understands our pain. And spiritually for our hearts, it is such a powerful realization when we realize, Jesus, you understand this. You've felt this. You get this and it makes us feel significantly less alone. So that's the first one. The second thing that his presence does in the midst of our storms, he's entered into it to empower us, to empower us. And to empower us to do what? Endure. Sin devastated everything. And as a result of that devastation, we now live in a world in which suffering is unavoidable. There in your note sheet, I put a well-known passage from James chapter one. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, and some of you have heard me say this before, that's the one verse in the Bible I wish I could rewrite. And the reason why I wish I could rewrite is I would simply take the word whenever and I would put the word if. I don't feel like I've even asking for much. I would just like an outside chance to believe that maybe I could achieve a life that is free from suffering. But again, one of the beautiful things about scripture is that it's honest. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance is a supernatural transformation that is the result of Jesus' presence in us. Let the perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, meaning there is growth in our lives that will only happen during those significantly difficult seasons. Again, this pain is being redeemed so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And again, a little bit of context, most of the entirety of the Bible, if not all of it, especially as we go to the Old Testament, was written in times of significant suffering. James is writing to the saints scattered among the ancient world who are experiencing significant suffering and significant perseverance. And he's saying that not only focus your attention on the fact that Jesus 
Jesus is present, but Jesus is at work transforming your hearts. And when we look at maturing through perseverance, when Jesus is transforming us, when Jesus is maturing us, he is doing that by breathing new life directly into our hearts because that is how Jesus transforms our hearts to grow. It is amazing, this truth, that even in the darkest nights of our soul, that King Jesus can draw out new life, even in the midst of pain. Let me illustrate it this way. I unexpectedly this past week spent the majority of Wednesday at the hospital. And I'm okay. It turns out I have a hernia that needs to be dealt with in the near future. And so first of all, I had to get a CT scan done. Have any of you ever had a CT scan stuff? If you've ever had a CT scan, did they make you drink the stuff? <laughs> Richard, can you throw that picture up there? Do you know what I'm talking about? They need to be able to see inside of you, and so this is that solution, is they make you drink this liquid, which is like milk that's been left out too long, <laughs> and it looks like that color, and if you look at it, it's somehow, quote, berry-flavored, which doesn't help. But you have to drink one of those, and then you have to wait a half an hour, and then you have to drink another one of those, and then you just sit there until they're ready for you. Now, that has nothing to do with the point of the story. I just thought we needed a moment to breathe. So there's that. So I'm walking out of radiology. As I'm walking through the department and the hallway I'm in, there's only one other person. As I walk by them, we just exchange glances, and very immediately I knew that they either had been or currently are battling cancer. And as I continued to walk, I just felt this burden to pray over this person. I began to pray for them because I can't imagine how exhausting this all must have been. I can't imagine the tears and the heartbreak that they must have experienced. I began praying for their family because, again, something like that doesn't just affect one person. It affects circles around them. And as I began to pray, my heart began becoming heavier and heavier because I realized I'm in a hospital. I'm filled with people who are suffering. There are people all throughout this building that I don't see that are experiencing loss, that are experiencing suffering, that are experiencing pain. And so as imperfectly as I could, I just went, God, make yourself present, make yourself known. And as I continued walking, all of a sudden in the loudspeaker, they started playing a lullaby. At my hospital, whenever a baby is born, they play a lullaby through the loudspeakers to be able to celebrate that life has begun. And it paused me and it brought a smile to my face to go, in the middle of loss, in the middle of pain, in the little of suffering, we can all stop and celebrate the new life has just come into the world. And I share that because what a beautiful picture of what Jesus does while he's present in your pain. Is that he creates new life in it. You know, over the last couple of years, I've spoken a lot about Catherine Wolf. And Richard, you can throw that picture up there. And Catherine, when she was 25, experienced an incredible spinal stroke. And to save her life, the doctors had to disable her permanently. And so the paralysis you see in her face, the wheelchair and all of that was a result of saving her life. 
And her and her husband, Jay, since then have experienced numerous surgeries, numerous trials, but they lead a ministry called Hope Healed. They are filled with so much joy. She has often said, I would not change my story for a minute because it's a reflection of the glory of God. And in her book, excuse me, in their book, Suffer Strong, which for me and my trials in life, this has been a significant encouragement to me, and we do carry it in our bookstore. She writes this there in your note sheet, who doesn't want a fast-forward outcome sometimes? Who doesn't want to just arrive at the promise ending right now? But a life in fast forward is no way to experience the grandeur of a story. A life is best lived in real time. Otherwise, we'll never be able to pay attention to what God is doing in us and moreover, who God is becoming to us. We would have missed out on a healing that is truer and deeper than we ever knew we needed. And she's responding to this question that how do you feel that God didn't instantly heal you. And her response is, I am healed because God has healed my heart in ways I would have never imagined through this pain and suffering. And that actually leads me directly into the last villain. Jesus has entered into our suffering to overcome. To overcome. Jesus has experienced our sufferings and through his own pain and suffering, he's crucified it and he's nailed it to the cross. And so Jesus is present with us. And the reason why this is so important is because when we look at the presence of Jesus, what we see is victory. What we see is triumph. What we see is truth, that sin has been defeated, that sin, that sin leading to suffering is not gonna be the end of our story, but it's gonna be redeemed. It's gonna be redefined because of King Jesus with us. Now hear me, that victory may happen in ways or in timetables that are completely unexpected and frankly, not part of how we would have done it. But it's gonna lead to something bigger. There in your note sheet, a couple chapters earlier in John's gospel, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have over." come the world. Can we say it again? I have overcome the world. Can you just pause and rest in that, please? I have overcome the world. Christ follower, I don't know where you've been. I don't know where you are. I don't know where you're going. I don't know your scars. I don't know your hurt. I don't know your pain. But Jesus does. And he's been there every step of the way. And he will continue to be there every step of the way to empathize with you, to empower you, and to remind you that he has overcome. And so as we transition out of our time of teaching, I'm gonna invite the worship team to come on out and we're gonna close by singing a song that we've sung before, but one that I think beautifully encapsulates the heart and the hope from John chapter 18. And for some of us, let me encourage you that this time of worship needs to be a loud declaration, maybe through smiles, maybe through tears that Jesus the King is present with us no matter what. 
For some of us, maybe this time of worship needs to be a prayer that is said over you. Maybe you need to sit, maybe you need to go to your knees, maybe you just need to have your hands open to receive what God wants to do. For some of you, maybe the Lord wants to lead you on a different journey in this time, whatever it is, let's let the Lord lead as we reflect on his goodness, as we reflect on his authority, as we reflect on his victory, amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you are here. Jesus, you are present and we thank you for that truth. Jesus, you will not be shaken. Jesus, your victory will not be refuted. Jesus, you have entered into our world. You have entered into our lives. You have entered into our hearts. You've entered into the good. You've entered into the successes. You've entered into the gifts and the passions. You've entered into the mundane, the boring, the innocuous. You've entered into our sin and our imperfection. You've entered into the brokenness, the pain and the hurt that we feel. Jesus, you are with us every step of the way. Jesus, you chose to suffer so that you could loudly declare to us, I know what it's like to suffer. I know what your suffering is like. I know what your pain is like. And that is not the end of your story. God is writing a bigger one. And so we may not know the answers. We may not know where things are going to go from here, but we know you. We trust you. We anchor ourselves in you because what other God would willingly enter into all of this just to say, look at me, trust me, I love you and I'm here. And so as we sing this final song, this is our declaration sung with the power of the Holy Spirit in us, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your presence. And it's in your name that we all said, amen.